Okay, so this message is entitled The Final Conflict Between Christ and Satan. You can see some of the challenges that have come into God's church from the last presentation that we talked about. And we spent some time going through the history of the seals and how it brings us down to the very end of the world to the second coming of Jesus. And now we are going to spend some time looking at what Christ is doing and what Satan is doing to prepare a people at the end of time. Christ is working to prepare a people. Satan is working to tear that people down. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. And specifically, we are going to look at the end of the seven trumpets, and we're going to tie that in to the end of Daniel chapter 11. So those of you who get excited when you hear Daniel 11 brought up, we're going to look at Daniel 11 just a little bit today. And I even have a whiteboard up, and I'll be honest with you, um, I thought I was going to be in a small seminar room, so I was a little bit surprised when I heard I was going to be out here. I'm happy to be out here with you, but that means that the whiteboard may not serve its function very well, but we'll, we'll still get through it, no problem. So, okay. When you look at the big picture of Revelation, you see that there are seven churches, seven seals, and then seven trumpets. When you come to the end of the seven churches, you find the Laodicean church, which is in a lukewarm condition, and Jesus is saying, you need to let me come in. When you let me come in, you will overcome as I overcame. So there's this question mark kind of hanging out there. What is going to happen to God's last day church? They are God's judgment hour church. Laodicea means the judged people. They are the church of the judgment hour. They are being judged in Christ as saying, I'm giving you a faithful and true testimony that you are in a terrible condition, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And if you don't have Christ's righteousness, you're in bad shape for the judgment. So Christ is saying, you need to let me come in. So you can have my righteousness. And that's been a problem with Adventism. We just want an outward covering without a heart change. So there's this question mark that is left. What's going to happen to God's people in his last day church? Then you come to the seven seals, which we just looked at, and somehow from God's last day church, the 144,000 become sealed. Now we see what happened. They wake up, they start doing the medical missionary work that God has given them to do. They bring a deeper message and a better understanding of the Sabbath to the world. And the Sabbath, which is the seal of God, then is properly understood so God can have a people who are sealed. Then you come to the seven trumpets. And the seven trumpets are probably the least studied in the book of Revelation and perhaps the least understood. We're not going to go into detail on the trumpets. But when you look from a historicist perspective, the first four trumpets would be, a, would be God's judgments on Western Rome for their persecution of God's people. The fifth and sixth trumpets are, are God's persecution through the Ottoman Turks on Eastern Rome for the persecution of the saints. And the reason why I know that is because Ellen White in Great Controversy, page 334, identifies the time prophecy of one hour, one day, one month, and one year as a fulfillment of what the Ottoman Turks did to the Eastern Roman Empire. That concludes on August 11, 1840. That's all I'm going to say about the first six trumpets. What we want to focus in on is what happens 
during the sounding of the seventh trumpet, and there's actually an interlude, just as there was an interlude between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, which ushers in the second coming, the silence in heaven for half an hour. In the, the trumpets, between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, you have Revelation chapter 10 and Revelation chapter 11, the first 14 verses. Now, when you look at Revelation chapter 10 and Revelation chapter 11, what are these two chapters talking about? What's Revelation 10 about? You're Seventh-day Adventist, you should know this, amen? What's Revelation 10 talking about? This is the mighty angel who comes down from heaven, Jesus Christ, who raises up a new movement, the Second Advent Movement, around the time of 1840 at the end of the Sixth Trumpet. He has a book open in his hand. What book has been unsealed for that time? The book of Daniel, specifically the prophecy of the 2300 days, which points you to 1844. Jesus is pointing us to the book of Daniel, saying that the time prophecies of the book of Daniel are what give the fuel power to raise up this second advent movement. So Revelation chapter 10 is talking about the raising up of the second advent movement. Now what's Revelation 11 talking about? The French Revolution, right? It talks about rise and measure the temple of God, but the, the courtyard which was without, measure it not. It's given unto the Gentiles to trodden the people of God or the city of God underfoot for 1260 years. And then you have the two witnesses, the Old and the New Testament, clothed in sackcloth and ashes as the papal church suppresses the scripture from the people during those 1260 years. And at the very end of the 1260 years, right towards the very end, the French Revolution takes place. And then at the end of Revelation 11, the seventh trumpet sounds, you get to verse 19, you look into the temple of God and you see the most holy place. So, what's going on here? You have the second advent movement in Revelation chapter 10. You have the French Revolution in Revelation chapter 11. And then the seventh trumpet sounds and God enters, the Father and the Son enter into the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary to begin the final judgment, the cleansing of the sanctuary here on this earth. And the question is, why did God take an interlude between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet to tell us that he would raise up a second advent movement and to tell us that the French Revolution would take place at the end of the 1260 years? Have you ever thought about that? You realize that God doesn't do anything by accident though, right? I'm going to give you the big picture briefly and then we're going to get into the detail. Here's what I would submit to you. There's a final conflict between Christ and Satan at the end of the world. And God is saying at the end of the world, Satan, you've had your time on this earth and now as I get to the final judgment hour of earth's history, I am going to raise up a special movement to do a very special work. And we're going to talk about this in detail. That's Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 11, Satan says, Oh yeah? Well, I'm going to do something as well. I'm going to bring out a revolution 
the principles of which, or the principles that drive that revolution, I am going to use till the very close of time. And Satan is saying, I bet you, God, that the principles from the French Revolution are going to keep you from developing your people that you say you will develop in the judgment hour. So we have a final conflict between Christ and Satan. Who's going to win? I think we know. Okay. So do you want to see the detail of Revelation 10 and Revelation 11 and how that develops God's side? And then we'll see Revelation 11, how that develops Satan's side and how the conflict comes together to a head at the very end. Do you want to see that? Okay, that's what we're going to do. So I'm excited about this presentation. All right. Revelation chapter 10. Let's go to verse 1. Here we read, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head. And his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. Now I'll just tell you, if you go to Revelation chapter 1, if you go to Exodus chapter 13, other places, the end of Daniel in chapter 12, chapter 10, you can identify very clearly that this mighty angel is Jesus himself. Now why would Jesus show up here in Revelation chapter 10? Well, first of all, Revelation is a book, the title of which is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. So what, here's what Jesus is saying. The work that is going to take place in Revel described in Revelation chapter 10 is so important that I am going to come down from heaven myself to inaugurate this movement which has a message because this movement and this message will bring forth a revelation of me. I'm not going to leave that to anybody else. And so Jesus comes down from heaven about the time period of 1840 because the sixth trumpet ends in Revelation 9, August 11, 1840, Revelation 10, John sees this mighty angel. He has a book open in its hand. He's a mighty angel. He has a rainbow upon his head. His face is like the sun. His feet is pillars of fire. He has a little book open in his hand. Now, the characteristics or the symbols placed about Jesus are very important. What's the rainbow a symbol of? The rainbow is a symbol of the covenant. And you can just see from what the description of Jesus is what kind of a work he's going to do. Jesus is coming to renew the covenant with his people. What's the covenant? God's law written in our hearts and minds. And around that time period in earth's history, which of the Ten Commandments had been forgotten? The one that we were told to remember. So you can tell from that period of earth's history that Jesus is coming down from heaven. He's coming to renew the work of the covenant with his people, and he's coming to help them to remember the seventh-day Sabbath. Not only that, he is clothed with a cloud. His face is like the sun. His feet are as pillars of fire, just as when he was with the children of Israel. And you go to Exodus 13, you can see he was like a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night. And where was he at when he was like a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire by night? He was hovering over the sanctuary. 
Because you see, Jesus was the leader of Israel who led them from Egypt to Canaan, and he helped them get there through an understanding of the sanctuary. And Jesus is saying, I am coming to renew my covenant with you, to help you to remember the law that you've forgotten, specifically the fourth commandment, and I will do so again, as I did in the Old Testament, by taking you through the sanctuary. So Jesus is announcing what he's doing, and he says, let me show you how to find this forgotten commandment and this sanctuary message. Go to the little book that's open in my hand, the book of Daniel, and go to the prophecy that says unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. That prophecy that was shut up and sealed till the time of the end, that is open for you to understand now. Now that it's open for you to understand, you can understand that the sanctuary message is important specifically that I've gone into the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary and that in the most holy place I am renewing the covenant where I will cleanse the sanctuary and I will write my law into your heart and mine. So Jesus comes down from heaven clothed with a cloud, a rainbow upon his head, his face like the sun, his feet like pillars of fire. He has a book in his hand, a little book that is open. He set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth. The fact that he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth shows that this is a worldwide message. And then you go through the sounding of the seven thunders. Ellen White simply tells us that's the events that took place under the first and second angel's message during the Millerite movement. And you continue on. In verse 5, and the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his head to heaven, or his hand to heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. Now, we understand this as Seventh day Adventist to mean. He's pointing to a book that has been opened. He's announcing a special time of earth's history, and there's a prophecy in the book that has been opened, the 2300 days, that points to this time, and what he's saying is there's no more prophetic time now that this book has been opened, and it points you to 1844. So please, Seventh-day Adventists, if you hear somebody who has new light about the 1260, the 1290, and the 1335, there's no reinterpretation of that. There's no more prophetic time after 1844. End of discussion. And also, just as a side note, in Great Controversy, page 351, Ellen White identifies the 2300 days as the longest and last prophetic time period. Have any of you heard of the 2520? Guess what? It can't be true because the 2300 days is the longest. 2520 is 220 years longer. So if you hear complicated time schemes and this and that and charts and whatever connected to the 2520, that's wrong. Don't waste your time. So that's a side point. So Jesus is making this point. Notice, he swears by himself, because he can swear by no greater, that's Hebrews 6, he swears by himself that there will be time no longer. It's so important. He knows that there could be confusion on this. He knows that people need to understand that we're living at the end of the world. Prophecy 
Time prophecy has run out. Now we're just left with event prophecies. We're living in the judgment hour of earth's history. And this is such an important prophetic event that Jesus swears by an oath to let us know just how important it is. Now if God swears by an oath, this is important. There is time no longer. No more prophetic time. And verse 7 is the key verse for the message of this people. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. So during the sounding of the seventh trumpet, which Revelation eleven nineteen shows that it begins in 1844, during this time, God is saying that through my people that I have raised up, the mystery of God should be finished. What is the mystery of God? Colossians 1.27 makes it very clear. Let's turn there briefly. Colossians chapter 1. And we will pick it up. Actually, in verse 25, Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you, to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. So here's the mystery. What is it? Verse 27. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what John is seeing in, in vision in Revelation chapter 10 is that Jesus himself comes down from heaven to raise up a movement who will be a revelation of himself because through that movement the mystery of God will be finished which is Christ in you, not Christ outside of you, Christ in you, the hope of glory, and when Christ is in you, the hope of glory, you become a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's why Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but who? Christ liveth where? In me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by what? The faith of who? The Son of God. That's the faith of Jesus. That's the third angel's message. Here's what happens. Here's what God is saying through about his last day church. God is saying around the time period of 1840, he sends Jesus down from heaven as the mighty angel, the leader of this movement. He's clothed with a cloud. Pillars of fire are his feet because that's how he led the children of Israel through the sanctuary. A rainbow is above his head because he's going to renew the covenant. And he's saying, I will finish this mystery, which will be the development of the character of Christ in the lives of my people by renewing the covenant with them and by leading them back to an understanding of the sanctuary message. And when we understand the sanctuary message, our lives will be cleansed from sin. And Ellen White says, in order for the sanctuary in heaven to be cleansed above, there must be a purifying of sin from the lives of God's people here on this earth. It goes together. The mystery of God should be finished. Here's what we see in Revelation 10. We see a covenant-keeping God who intends to lead his people back to the sanctuary so that they will have his character in their hearts and lives. So that we will have his character in our hearts and lives. 
And this is where I want to take you through a brief roadmap of the sanctuary message. Because Jesus is saying, I'm going to renew my covenant with you. I am going to lead you to the sanctuary. And when you are led to the sanctuary, when you, my covenant is renewed with you, you will experience the mystery of God that will be finished. And by the way, what Jesus is saying in this final conflict between himself and Satan, he is saying, okay, Satan, this is what I'm going to do. I'm raising up a movement of people who will be like me. That is my answer to you in the great controversy. And Satan is saying, oh yeah? Well, look what I'm going to do through the French Revolution. So Jesus is saying, I will have a group of people who are a revelation of me. Now let me show you how I'm going to do that, is what he says. It's through the sanctuary. Let's go to the book of Hebrews. And by the way, the book of Hebrews is a book that every Seventh-day Adventist should study and understand. Hebrews, let's just look at the big picture and then we're going to get into some detail. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 1, and Pastor Skeet mentioned this last night. In Hebrews chapter 1, God the Father identifies Jesus as being the Son. But not only does he identify him as the Son, he identifies him as being God. So when the Father says to the Son, you are God, that is the highest authority that can identify the divinity of Jesus. Amen? So Jesus is God, chapter 1. But in chapter 2, Jesus is fully man. Verse 16 says, he took on him the seed of Abraham. Not the seed of Adam, the seed of Abraham. He was made in all things like his brethren. His brethren in that chapter are those who are sanctified. And why did he do that? So he could be a merciful and faithful high priest. Because he was tempted like we are tempted. So here's what we see. Chapter 1, Jesus is fully God. Chapter 2, Jesus is fully man. And so when you come to chapter 3, verse 1, a summary statement is made which says, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. So the mighty angel of Revelation 10 is also the apostle and high priest of our profession. And as our, the mighty angel, as the apostle and high priest of our profession, he is going to develop a group of people through whom the mystery of God is finished. So we should pay attention to what Jesus is doing as our high priest in the book of Hebrews because this is how he develops a group of people as his answer to Satan in the great controversy. So chapter 1, Jesus is God. Chapter 2, Jesus is man. Chapter 3, he's the apostle and high priest of our profession because he is God and because he is man. Listen, in order for Jesus to be high priest, he has to be God. You can't have someone less than God as our high priest who can forgive our sins. Only God can forgive sins. But in order to have a high priest who sympathizes with our weakness, you need someone who's walked in our shoes. And Jesus has done that as well. So he is fully God. That qualifies him to forgive our sins, of course, because he died on the cross. And it qualifies him because he's man to be our high priest because he's walked in our shoes. And then Paul kind of makes some points to the Hebrew Christians, and it's relevant to us as well. He's saying, hey, Hebrews, 
you better watch out because you had Moses as your leader. He was the best possible leader God could have ever given to you. And you still murmured and complained all the time. You had all these blessings. You went through the Red Sea. God miraculously parted the sea. He put the cloud between the Egyptians and and you so that you could go through the Red Sea. And then the Red Sea wiped them out. You hadn't quite learned your lesson, so you got to the bitter water of Mara, and then you complain again, and you're like, oh, God must have parted the Red Sea so he could kill us out here in the desert. And then after the water turned sweet, then you started wondering where your food was going to come from. And so then you complained again, and God provided the manna. Then he gave you water that came gushing out of the rock, and yet time and time again, when something went wrong, oh, God's led us out here to die in the wilderness. Oh, we should just go back to Egypt. Oh, the giants in the promised land, they're too much for us to overcome. We can't overcome. Well, I'm glad Seventh-day Adventists aren't like that. Or maybe not. We come to church, we hear a message that stirs our soul, and on the way home, we get a flat tire, and we're starting to question our Christian experience. We're kicking the tire and wondering, what's happening in my life? Or three days later, something you get some bad news, and you're like, I'm just not sure about this whole God thing anymore. Why do all these bad things keep happening to me? And like the children of Israel, we forget the ways that God has parted the Red Sea for us, how he's given us manna, how he's given us bread, how he's given us water. How much more does God need to do for us? Sure, we have trials, but God has given to each one of us abundant evidence of his leading in our lives. And so the warning to the Hebrews is, don't harden your hearts in unbelief, because our forefathers hardened their hearts in unbelief, and they did not enter in to the promised land, because they did not have faith. Chapter 4 says, but you can enter into this promised land, the heavenly Canaan, if you have a faith experience, if you enter into God's rest, the place to find this rest experience is the seventh-day Sabbath. And I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this. We're just kind of hitting the high points. After he kind of reminds them of how their forefathers fell away, he comes to chapter 5 and he says, okay, now let's talk about what a good high priest is like. A good high priest is someone who has compassion on the ignorant, those who are out of the way, those who are compassed with infirmity, because that high priest is also compassed with infirmity. Jesus took our infirmities. He did not sin, but he took our infirmities, and that uh, helps him to have compassion on us. And of course, during their time, the Sadducees and Pharisees did not have compassion. If you weren't rich, you're out. And then you see that Christ learned obedience through the things which he suffered. In the days of his flesh, he offered up strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death. He was heard in that he feared. Being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. Now, when you hear that Jesus is the author of eternal salvation to all those who obey him, can you think of anywhere in the book of Hebrews that describes Jesus as the author? How about Hebrews 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So Paul's going somewhere here. He's kind of warming us up. He's saying Jesus is the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And he's the author and the finisher of our faith. 
And then he gives a message of rebuke to the Hebrew Christians. And well might he give a similar rebuke today. Notice starting in verse 11 of Hebrews 5. Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. This is what Paul is saying to the Hebrew Christians. He's saying, come on. Here you are living in the city of Jerusalem in 66 AD, four years before its destruction. And when you should have been out teaching the word of God to others, I'm having to teach you the principles of the word of God as if it's the first time you ever heard it. Jesus ascended to heaven 35 years ago. Why are you still baby Christians? What would Paul say to Seventh-day Adventists today? Seventh-day Adventists, wake up. Turn off the TV. You don't know your Bible message that would prepare you for the end of time. Why are you wasting time on the things of this world? You should have been out there teaching this message to the world, but you have need of others to come in and teach you as if it's the first time you've ever heard it. <coughs> Excuse me. And here's what he says. You're stuck on the milk of the Word of God. Who is milk good for? Babies. You know, my daughter's two years old now. She's on solid food now. She's been off of milk as her primary source of nutrition for quite a while now. So why is it that so often we as Seventh-day Adventists think it's okay to stay on baby spiritual food for our entire Christian experience? Do we need to start with a baby food when we first come into the faith? Absolutely. But you should be strengthened by that milk so that you can get onto the meat of the word. And Paul is saying, I'm trying to teach you what Jesus is doing in the most holy place or in the sanctuary in heaven. And for us, the most holy place of the sanctuary in heaven since 1844. And we're still stuck on the word of God. And we don't even really understand what that means for Jesus to be our great high priest. Now, maybe not you here, but certainly in other places. And it's interesting, Paul says, if you, stay stuck in the of, if you stay stuck in the milk of the word of God, you are unskillful in the word of righteousness, meaning if all you understand is milk, you really don't understand righteousness by faith. Get out of the milk of the word of God. Okay. <clears throat> so that's a little bit of a rebuke. And then Paul continues. He develops the concept that Christ is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then you get to Hebrews chapter 8. Verses 1 and 2, we see that Christ is our high priest, set down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. What's he doing as our high priest? In verses 5 and 6, he's the mediator of a better covenant. What's this new covenant? Him writing that, uh, the, the covenant is him writing his law into our hearts and minds. And what's his law? A transcript of his character. So at a very basic level, you can say right here, wow, so when Jesus does his work as our great high priest in the most holy place of the sanctuary in heaven, 
He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's the mediator of a better covenant, which is to write his law, which is his character, into our hearts and minds. Okay, now I understand how the mystery of God is going to be finished. And that's a good starting point. But that's not the only thing that Jesus is doing at the right hand of the throne of God. And you see again in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, that he is going to write his law into our hearts and minds. One thing that I forgot to mention is that in Hebrews 6, we see in verse, uh, at the end of 18, last half of verse 18, it says, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So how is Jesus described here? He's described as having entered within the veil. He's also described as being the forerunner. What does a forerunner do? A forerunner runs ahead of you in a race, right? He runs the same race that you are to run. Now let me ask you this. In the book of Hebrews, is there a place where we are called to run the race that Jesus has run? Absolutely. Hebrews 12. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with what? Patience, the race that is set before us. Well, who's run this race that has been set before us? Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, meaning he ran with patience. We don't say he patienced the cross, because that's bad English. So we say he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So that's just a little bit of foreshadowing. We're going to talk more about that. But what we can say is this. Jesus is our high priest. He is the forerunner. He has entered within the veil. And by the way, in the Greek, within the veil can either be the veil into the holy place or the veil into the most holy place. Don't let Desmond Ford confuse you and say that's straight into the most holy place. Sometimes it amazes me that there's still some Seventh-day Adventists who give credence to what Desmond Ford says. Okay. Continuing on, in Hebrews 10, this is where things get really interesting for me. Hebrews chapter 10. After Christ says that I will write my law into your hearts and minds in verses 16 and 17, notice what he says in verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. So what is Paul saying here? He says, enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, but not only by the blood of Jesus, but what else? By a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. So here's what we see. We are to enter into the holiest, which is the holy places of the sanctuary, which in our time is the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. And we need two things to enter into the most holy place of the sanctuary with boldness. What are those two things? Number one, 
the blood of Jesus. Number two, a new and living way, which is his flesh, which is his life. Here's how we come with boldness to the throne of grace as described in Hebrews 4 and again in Hebrews chapter 10. We need the blood of Jesus and we need the life of Jesus. And here's what you get with the blood of Jesus. You get forgiveness of sins, you get justification. And with his flesh, with his life, you get his sanctification. This is the way of salvation. You don't separate out the blood of Jesus from the life of Jesus. They, all, they come together as a package. Justification and sanctification are a package. And here's the point. Jesus, he is our forerunner, as Hebrews 6 has identified. So Jesus is our forerunner. He goes through the veil into the holy place in 31 AD. In 1844, he goes through the veil into the most holy place. And it's, it's as if there's a gatekeeper who makes sure that whoever comes through the veil has the two things that are required. What are those two things? The blood of Jesus and the life of Jesus. So when Jesus comes to the veil of the holy place in 31 AD, whoever that gatekeeper may be in my sanctified imagination, looks at Jesus and they see a lamb that had been slain, Jesus who shed his blood on the cross. He has his blood. Not only does he have his blood, he lived a perfect life. And so the gatekeeper says, come right on into the holy place in 31 AD. And then again in 1844, Jesus could go right through the veil into the most holy place because again, he has his blood from the cross. He has his perfect life that he lives on this earth. And Paul is saying, we can have boldness to come to the throne of grace to receive grace and mercy to help in our time of need because Jesus is promising to give to each one of us his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, but not only that, his life, which is a new and living way that he has consecrated for us. Justification and sanctification. Jesus is the forerunner. We follow after him. We accept his blood, but not only do we accept his blood, as Galatians 2 says, we also become crucified with Christ. So we are no longer alive, the old man of sin is dead, and we have the blood of Jesus covering the record of our sins from the past, so we can come right through the veil with boldness. Not only that, we have the power of God's overcoming grace in our life, and so we are following after the forerunner. And so as we follow this forerunner into the most holy place, we see that as our high priest, he is working to write his law into our hearts and minds so he can have a commandment-keeping people. And that's what Jesus is doing as our great high priest, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. But listen, as our forerunner, we see that he ran a race described in Hebrews 12 where he is the author and the finisher of our faith. So what is this race that he is the forerunner of? The race begins at the cross. Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So this race of faith begins at the cross. He endured the cross, but where did he end up? It says he is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So not only is he our high priest at the right hand of the throne of God, he is also the author and the finisher of our faith set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And what is Jesus doing as the author and the finisher of our faith? As our high priest, he is working to write his law into our hearts and minds so that he will have a commandment-keeping people. As the author and the finisher of our faith, this is what he is doing. He is helping us to run with patience the race 
that is set before us. Did you realize that if you run the race of faith, trials are going to come into your life? It's not going to be a smooth sail downstream through the pearly gates. Sometimes people don't understand that. But it's through the trials of affliction that we are like gold purified in the fire. And Jesus helps us to run with patience the race that is set before us. So how do we run with patience? Do we kind of bear down and grit our teeth and say, life is horrible, I'm hating this experience, someday heaven will come and it will be better, this is awful. Is that what we're doing? No. Looking unto Jesus. The author and the finisher of our faith. He endured the cross. Listen, no matter what your trial is here on this earth, Jesus, our Savior, our High Priest, our King of kings and Lord of lords, went through the cross for us. Why? For the joy that was set before him. Listen, when we run the race that Jesus is the forerunner of, if we're running the same race, Jesus endured the cross, we have patience, but, but he had joy set before him. And what was that joy? Of seeing those who would be saved in the kingdom. What's our joy? It's of seeing Jesus when we get there. Listen, if you want to know how to get through the trials of life, just keep your eyes on Jesus, and even though it may be tough, even though it may be hard, even though you may feel discouraged, maybe your children are frustrating you, they're making you disappointed, maybe a spouse is making life difficult, maybe your job hasn't gone the way you thought. It could be any number of other challenges, but if you can keep the joy set before you of Jesus in heaven, your Savior, way waiting to usher you into the gates of heaven, that will help you to have patience through the race set before you. And you can follow the forerunner. So Jesus, as the author and the finisher of our faith at the right hand of God, is working to develop a group of people with patience. But listen, he's not only going to help us start our experience of faith as the author of our faith, he is also the finisher of our faith. And when he finishes our faith we will be set down at the right hand of the throne of God the way he is. And did you know that Jesus has given us that promise? Revelation 3, to the Laodicean church, verse 21, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. Jesus overcame and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He says, overcome as I overcame, and you will sit in the same place. How do we overcome? 1 John 5, 4 says, this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. So we are to overcome by faith. Jesus overcame. He must have overcome by his faith. So if we overcome the way Jesus overcame, we will have the same faith that Jesus had. That is the faith of Jesus. That connects to Galatians 2.20 and of being crucified with Christ. That is the third angel's message. So here's what Jesus is doing as the author and the finisher of our faith at the right hand of the throne of God. He is working to develop a group of people who have patience and who have the faith of Jesus. 
And as our high priest, we saw that he's working to write his law into our hearts and minds so that he will have a group of people who keep the commandments of God. So Jesus at the right hand of the throne of God as our high priest and as the author and the finisher of our faith is working to develop a group of people who keep the commandments of God, have the patience of the saints and the faith of Jesus, which is a nicely summarized concept in Revelation chapter 14 verse 12 where it says here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Revelation 14, 12 is a description of the 144,000 who are the group of people that Jesus has been working to develop ever since he went into the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary as our high priest and as the author and the finisher of our faith. Now here's the thing. When Jesus has a group of people, as described in Revelation chapter 14, verse 12, that will be a group of people who are a revelation of Jesus Christ. And if you recall from Revelation chapter 10, Jesus comes down from heaven as the mighty angel to develop a group of people through whom the mystery of God is finished, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, which is a revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's the second advent movement and the people of the second advent movement that Christ is especially working on to have that experience. And the reason why he is working on us for such a time as this to have that experience is so that we can go out to the world as a demonstration, as a revelation of Jesus Christ to show that the principles of the gospel work in the lives of sinful humanity. So that at the end of time, in Revelation 18, when an angel comes down from heaven having great power, the earth is lightened with its glory, God will have emissaries, ambassadors, those who have his character to call people out of Babylon because everything is going to be going against God's people. The current will be telling people, stay in Babylon, keep your job, keep your money, keep your food, keep your family safe. This is the place to be. Don't leave what you have to go to something you don't really know about. But when people see the character of Jesus shining through our lives, they are going to come out. So Jesus, who is our forerunner, is calling us to follow after him so that he can develop in our lives the experience of the third angel's message, so that we can be among the number of 144,000. And that is the work that Jesus has been doing since 1844. Now, in the last part of our presentation, we're going to see what Satan is doing to try to stop Jesus from developing that group of people. Satan is saying, you say you're going to do this, God, but I bet you can't. Look what I'm going to do. I, uh, I understand the human heart. I've had 6,000 years to perfect my craft. I know what to do to get under these Advent people's skin. Just wait till you see what I do, God. 
And so that's where Revelation 11 comes in. So Revelation 10, we see Jesus, the mighty angel, clothed with a cloud, feet as pillars of fire, rainbow above his head. He's pointing people to the sanctuary. What does the sanctuary message teach us? Is that Jesus is our forerunner, that we are to follow after him by a new and living way, with his blood, with his life. That takes us to the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, where we see him as our high priest, working to write his law into our hearts and minds. We see him as the author and the finisher of our faith, working to develop, to develop up a group of people with patience and the faith of Jesus so that he will have a group of people who experience the third angel's message. That is what the sanctuary message is all about. And when Christ has a group of people who experience the third angel's message, the sanctuary in heaven will be cleansed. So that's what Jesus is working on. Now let's see what Satan's doing. Revelation 11. Revelation chapter 11 shows us the 1260 years of papal persecution and by the way, have you ever wondered why God allowed the papacy to persecute the saints for 1,260 years during the dark ages after the cross? Why would God allow Satan to have charge over a power for that long to bring that much destruction to this earth? And Revelation 13 makes it very clear. The dragon, which is the devil and Satan, gave his power, seat, and authority to this persecuting beast power. Why were they allowed to rule for 1,260 years? Well, it's actually pretty straightforward. It took that long to get to the French Revolution. And here's what happens when you get to the French Revolution. A beast comes up from the bottomless pit, having the full character of Satan developed. That's how long it took to show what happens when Satan is in charge here on this earth. Because for 1,260 years, Satan works through a power who suppresses the word of God, who skews the picture of the true character of God. And so, especially in France, France is where the papacy and the state initially lined up when Clovis of the Franks gave his military power to drive out the barbaric tribes in 508. And so, France was especially where the papacy set up shop. It was in France, you can read this in Ellen White, France especially tried to snuff out the Protestant Reformation. You had the St. Bartholomew's Massacre, the Huguenots were driven out. France was not friendly or kind to the Reformation. The papacy reigned supreme, especially in France. And so the people of France, after 1260 years of seeing what it's like for Satan to be in charge, they said, well, if this is what God is like, which it was a skewed view, and it showed what Satan is really like, they said, if this is what God is like, we want nothing to do with him. And so the French Revolution takes place, which is based on atheism. And so atheism was born, and when atheism was born, you had complete anarchy. People were killed and slaughtered at the guillotine. It was awful, awful destruction, which shows what happens when the Spirit of God is withdrawn from the earth and Satan gains control over humanity. If you want to know what heaven would have become like if Satan had won in heaven, the French Revolution is a demonstration. You would have had angels on the chopping block with a guillotine. Those who don't agree with Satan, cut their head off. If you're not on my side, cut your head off. And that's what the papacy did all through the years. They would burn the heretics. You can read about it through history. It's well documented. It's well known. And yet the Christian world today is saying, we're sorry that we went away from you. Let's come back and be on the same team again. They haven't changed. And the French Revolution shows what happens when Satan is in charge. 
And so the French Revolution happens. And do you know what the French Revolution was based on? There were three key principles. Of course, a, a, of course atheism was the overriding principle, but there were three key principles that drove the revolutionaries. Liberty, equality, and fraternity. It sounds pretty innocuous to me because America is the land of liberty. It's allowed for the three angels' messages to be given unimpeded. I mean, the fact that we're here this weekend and we can say what we're saying with religious freedom. I mean, we believe in liberty. That's one of the great principles of America. Equality, absolutely. Of course, our nation's history is stained with the history of slavery. Shame on us. We said all men were created equal except the slaves, and fortunately God um, brought America to its senses eventually on that. Fraternity, which means to work together for a common cause. You know, in some respects, that's what the Seventh-day Adventist Church is all about, working together for a common cause. Hey, that sounds pretty good. But apart or divorced from the principles of God, if these are principles from an atheistic, humanistic perspective, you better watch out. Now, let me take you now to this diagram on the board. And as I said earlier, um, I expected to be in a small seminar room. So anyway, this, this chart will serve its purpose. This is a description of the end of Daniel chapter 11, because here's where we are in Revelation 10 and Revelation 11. Revelation 10 shows the rise of the second advent movement that God raises up to prepare people to be among the 144,000. The French Revolution shows that Satan shows off the full principles of his character, and he brings a beast up out of the bottomless pit to be a player at the end of Earth's history, around the time of the end, to try to destroy the work of God. So when you come to the end of Daniel chapter 11, specifically in verse 40, in the, at the time of the end, it says the king of the south pushes at the king of the north. This is 1798. As Seventh-day Adventists, I don't think I need to explain to you that 1798 and the time of the end are synonymous. 1798, papacy gets a deadly wound by atheistic France, this beast that comes up out of the bottomless pit. When you then read through the rest of Daniel chapter 11, you see that the king of the north makes a comeback. And it's interesting. He overcomes the king of the south with chariots, horsemen, ships, all of that. I won't go into all the detail of that, but that's through economic and military power. And I believe that process at least began in the late 1980s as Reagan and the Pope made an alliance. The Berlin Wall came down and the atheistic, communistic nations of Eastern Europe that had been opposed to the papacy came crashing down. So the papacy makes a comeback. Then in verse 40 is where things get very interesting or verse 41, it says, he shall enter also into the glorious land and many countries, but the word countries is supplied, so it better reason, many shall be overthrown. So here's what happens. The king of the north, which is the papacy, sometime after 1798, he makes a comeback. The deadly wound gets healed. He enters into the glorious land. Many are overthrown. We see that some escape. I'm not going to go into all the detail. I'm just going to hit the key points I want to bring out here. We see that the land of Egypt, which is atheist, the atheistic nations don't 
escape. Verse 43, he has power over the treasures of gold and silver. I believe that's the time of Revelation 13 where no man can buy or sell. You get to verse 44, tidings out of the east, out of the north shall trouble him. He goes forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. Verse 45, he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. Here's what I want to focus in on briefly. In the end of Daniel chapter 11, you have the glorious land and you have the glorious holy mountain. In Daniel 11, earlier in the chapter, verses 14 through 16, the glorious land represents Judea where God's people dwell. And it just so happened that as the king of the north, which was the division of Antiochus and um, Seleucus from Alexander the Great's kingdom, and then Ptolemy down in Egypt, they would fight between each other, and God's people in the glorious land of Judea would get caught in the crossfire. Guess what? At the end of time, God's people again get caught in the crossfire, and the king of the north eventually is going to enter into the glorious land for the purpose of conquest. And Satan is saying, hey God, you're saying in Revelation chapter 10 that you're going to develop a second advent movement through whom the mystery of God is finished, and you're saying that through the sanctuary message and in the book of Revelation, Chapter 14, you're going to have 144,000 who experience the third angel's message, the patience of the saints, the faith of Jesus, the commandments of God. And Satan is saying, God, I bet you I'm going to overtake them. I'm going to come into this glorious land where God's people are. And the Bible says many are going to be overthrown. And I believe that this is when the National Sunday Law takes place. When the National Sunday Law takes place, which that is very in the very near future in the prophecy of Daniel 11. I don't know when it's going to be, but it's in the very next thing that's going to happen. The king of the north enters into the territory of God's people for the purpose of conquest. And Satan is working through this power, and, he, and Satan is saying, I am going to conquer God's professed people. And so he comes down through the glorious land. Things are looking really good. Many are overthrown. He's like, man, as soon as we put uh, a restriction on them and said, if you don't worship on Sunday the way we do, you're not going to be able to buy or sell. Man, they dropped like flies. That was easy. And he's thinking, we're just going to run over all of them. This is going to be easy. He goes through the land of Egypt. He gets all the treasures of the world. No man can buy or sell. And it says the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps. And if you look at the map, you have Egypt, Libya, and Ethiopia. And in the ancient Hebrew mind, if you had all of this territory to the north conquered, you come down through here, you get to Egypt, Libya, and Ethiopia, you are at the point of conquering the entire world. And at the end of time, it looks as if the church will almost fall. And it looks as if Satan will conquer the world. Revelation 13 says, all the world wondered after the beast. And things are not looking so good. Satan is at the steps of the Libyans and the Ethiopians. And it's as if he has conquered the whole world. But something changes. In verse 44 it says, but tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. So as the king of the north seemingly has gotten down here, he's come all the way down through the glorious land and he's at Libya, he's at Ethiopia, having gone through Egypt, suddenly a message from the east and the north, which is from where the glorious holy mountain would be, that's Jerusalem, 
a message goes forth that infuriates the king of the north. And it reminds us of what Revelation 12, 17 says. The dragon was wroth with the woman, that's God's church, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. What's the testimony of Jesus Christ? The spirit of prophecy. Listen, you better not be throwing away the spirit of prophecy at this time of earth's history. If the spirit of prophecy is being attacked, it's because Satan knows that those who have the spirit of prophecy are going to be among the faithful, among the remnant who he cannot destroy at the end of the world. So he's trying to get rid of the spirit of prophecy. So if you hear people saying, let's not use the spirit of prophecy, Ellen White says one of the last deceptions that would take place would be to make her writings of none effect. And you know how you can make her writings of none effect? Just don't use them put it away. Don't talk about it. Nobody's saying we don't believe her anymore because that's too taboo. We just say, let's not use her. Her writings aren't friendly to people of other faiths. Well, you know what? If you share steps to Christ and desire of ages with people of other faiths, they're going to get a better picture of salvation and of who Jesus is than of anything else you can share with them outside of the Bible. Let's not be afraid of the spirit of prophecy. And so Satan goes after the spirit of prophecy. He goes after people who keep the commandments of God. And you know, it's funny. Sometimes if you talk about keeping the commandments of God, terms like legalism, perfectionism, and things like that come in. And it is true that if you separate yourself from the power of God, it can become that. But we shouldn't be afraid of being biblical commandment keepers through the power of God. That's biblical, and that's the people that Satan's going after. So if you're saying, I don't need to worry about keeping the commandments, wake up, you better worry because that's going against what the Bible teaches. The Bible says God's people will keep the commandments of God. Okay. And these tidings that come from the east and out of the north, they, this is, again, the loud cry message given by God's last day people. And it infuriates the papacy. Why do you think it would infuriate? Why would it infuriate the papacy? Here's why. Because it's a message that has great power, great authority. It lightens or illuminates the earth with its glory. And here's the content of the message. It says, he cried mightily, not softly with a whisper, but mightily with a strong voice saying, Babylon, the great, that's the papacy, is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils. Now, do you think you're going to be the papacy's favorite person when you're saying you're, you're the habitation of devils? We need to be willing to share the truth in love, but to say it as the Bible says. And so here's what happens. Satan thinks that he has conquered the world. He thinks he has conquered the church. He comes down through God's church. He comes down. He thinks he's about conquered the world. But oh, wait. Oh, no. There's a message coming from the glorious holy mountain. Well, what's the glorious holy mountain? The glorious holy mountain, let me just give you a couple of Bible verses to consider. Psalms chapter 48, verses 1 and 2. Psalms 48, 1 and 2. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God and the mountain of his holiness. Beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. So I would submit to you that the glorious holy mountain is Mount Zion. Mount Zion was on the north side of Jerusalem. 
Joel chapter 2 verse 32 gives us even more information about what the glorious holy mountain represents. Verse 32 of Joel chapter 2, which is a prophecy of the last days where God pours out his spirit on all flesh. Joel 2 32, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. Okay, so where does this deliverance come from? For in Mount Zion, and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. So Joel 2.32 identifies the significance of the glorious holy mountain. The glorious holy mountain is Mount Zion, which is synonymous with Jerusalem, which is synonymous with the remnant. So here's what happens. Satan comes through. A Sunday law takes place. Many in God's professed church are overthrown. I believe the glorious land is pre-shaken Adventism as it stands right now. When the Sunday law comes, many will be shaken out, but Satan will not conquer everyone. God is going to have a faithful remnant in his last day church who are not shaken out. They are in Mount Zion. They are in Jerusalem. They are in the remnant. And when you get to Revelation chapter 14, where are the 144,000 standing with the Lamb? Mount Zion. So those who are part of spiritual Mount Zion here on this earth, the 144,000, they will stand on the Lamb with Mount Zion in heaven. Now here's the interesting thing. In Revelation chapter 14 it says, these are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. And you know why they follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth in heaven? Because here on this earth, they follow the forerunner. They learn to run with patience the race that is set before them. They learn to look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of their faith. And they can then, as Satan comes through and he tries to make this final attack and he's trying to destroy the remnant, they are found faithful because they have followed the forerunner and no matter what Satan throws our way, we keep our eyes on Jesus and say, we're going to stay true to the Bible, we're not going to follow what man says. And so Satan sets up the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. And so here he sets up the tabernacle of his palace. The sea is out here. Sea represents people and prophecy. So you have this mass, this sea of people that are coming down against this small little remnant. And Satan is now saying to the last day remnant, he's saying, look at what I have now. The whole world is following after me. We're going to come out. We are going to destroy you. What are you going to do now? And you know, if we're going to be among the faithful, we need to realize, and this, is going, this ties back into Revelation 11 and the French Revolution, what Satan is doing to try to prevent us from being among that faithful remnant in the glorious holy mountain. Because remember, the French Revolution, the three key principles were liberty, equality, and fraternity. And I'm going to say it straight here now as we go through these three principles. Satan knows that if he can get Adventists to buy the principles of the French Revolution, they will be among the many who are overthrown when he brings in his national Sunday law because he will have gotten them to think the way he wants them to think. So how have these three principles, how can these three principles affect us, liberty, equality, and fraternity? Let me just give you a few things to think about. Liberty. Yes, we follow Jesus through the gospel of liberty, 
But there are people in the church today who are saying, we need liberty to practice according to how we want to practice. We need academic freedom. We need to teach our young people that evolution is true and creation is false. We need liberty, academic freedom. And by the way, that comes from the principles of atheism. Atheism came from the French Revolution. Evolution is all about atheism. It's denying God as the creator. And when you accept the principles of evolution, atheism, under the premises of academic freedom, you are setting yourself up to receive the mark of the beast. Not only that, equality. Now, we believe that all are created equal, men and women alike. But the Bible teaches that there are roles for men and there are roles for women. My mom is here today. I'm thankful that my mom was my mother. And I'm thankful that my dad was my father. And you know, some people don't have the privilege of growing up in a two-parent home, but that's God's ideal. And men make better fathers and women make better mothers. And when the Bible says that the leader of a church is the husband of one wife, that's what the Bible says. And by the way, what I'm saying, that's official GC policy, so I'm not speaking against the church here. And let me show you an interesting verse in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 12. Isaiah 3, verse 12 says, As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, they which lead thee, cause thee to err, and destroy the way of my past. Look what happens to God's people when you let children and women come in and usurp the authority that God has given to men. They cause God's people to err. We start focusing on that which has nothing to do with the message and mission of our church. We're fighting over these things, and it's distracting us from getting the three angels' messages out there. Let's just go back to what the Bible says. Let God ordain who the leaders are and let the chips fall where they may. Liberty, equality, fraternity, working together for a common cause or purpose. And this is one final point I will make. There has been a movement that has come into the church based on the principles of the emerging church movement. In fact, Dr. Rick Yeager did a very fine presentation of this at the ASI National Convention back in 2009, where he showed that people in our church have gone to George Fox University in the state of Oregon, where they are being taught the principles of, of the emerging church of contemplative prayer, centering prayer, things of that nature. In fact, Ted Wilson talked about it in his, his inaugural address as the General Conference president. And these people are leading a movement in the church to try to focus away from our distinctive message. In fact, their theme is described celebrating the supremacy of Jesus Christ in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Here's the irony. When they talk about the supremacy of Jesus Christ, we don't hear about the work of Jesus in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. Listen, Satan is going to do whatever he can through the principles of the French Revolution to come in and to prevent God's people who are dwelling in the glorious land. We have a profession of being Seventh-day Adventists, and he's trying to distract us. He's trying to prevent us from focusing on our message. Let's have academic freedom. Let's have equality. Let's have fraternity. And in the meantime, we are not developing characters that will prepare us for the coming of Jesus. And in fact, 
what ends up happening, here's a clear statement from Ellen White that shows how many will be overthrown. Great Controversy, page 608. As the storm approaches, a large class who have professed faith in the third angel's message, but have not been sanctified through obedience to the truth, abandon their position and join the ranks of the opposition. By uniting with the world and partaking of his spirit, they have come to view matters in nearly the same light. Here's the key. Those who have not been sanctified, which if you, here's the interesting thing. We hear that sanctification is not part of salvation, yet Ellen White says, if you're not sanctified, you're going to be overthrown and you're going to join the side that receives the mark of the beast. So that tells me that sanctification is part of salvation. Listen, if you hear your pastor teaching you that you don't need to worry about sanctification, you better watch out because that's preparing you to receive the mark of the beast. Sanctification is connected to our Sabbath message. The Sabbath is a sign that we have been sanctified. And if we're saying sanctification doesn't matter, we're saying the Sabbath doesn't really matter either. And so when the test comes, we'll say, well, I've never really been sanctified anyway. It's just covering righteousness. God will understand if I worship on a different day anyway because all these people profess to follow him too. And so Satan is going to do whatever he can, whether it's through the principles of the French Revolution, whether it's through Babylonian teachings that throw out sanctification to prevent God's people from receiving the seal of the living God. But you know what? Satan is not going to succeed. Jesus is going to win this battle. How do I know? Because after Daniel 11.45, you come to Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Pastor Skeet alluded to it last night several times. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, where it says, And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince, which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. And at that, and at that time, thy people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book. So here's what happens. The king of the north, he puts the tabernacle of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. He's going to besiege the city. It's the final abomination of desolation. He's going to destroy the remnant. And at that point, Michael says, that's it. Game over. I'm standing up. And here's why Michael is standing up. He's been seated since 1844 at the right hand of God, working to write his law into our hearts and minds, working to develop a group of people with patience and the faith of Jesus. And when Satan comes after this remnant, Satan recognizes that this group of people keep the commandments of God, have the patience of the saints and the faith of Jesus. And Michael, or Jesus, recognizes this as well. And he stands up. And whenever Michael shows up in the Bible, it's always great controversy warfare. Daniel chapter 10, Gabriel and the prince of the king of Persia contended for 21 days. Michael shows up, the victory's won. The book of Jude, Michael and Satan contend over the body of Moses. Michael shows up, it's decided. Revelation chapter 12, Michael and the dragon fight against each other. They're, Michael and his angels fight against the dragon and his, and his angels. Michael prevails. Guess what happens in Daniel chapter 12 verse 1? When Michael stands up, Michael prevails again. And his people, the 144,000 who have the patience of the saints, who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, they are his token. 
in the great controversy between him and Satan that he has defeated Satan in the final conflict of this battle. Because Christ says in Revelation 10, I'm going to raise up a movement who will have the principles of my government. They will be a revelation of me. Satan is saying, no way, I'm going to bring through the principles of the French Revolution a power, a beast from the bottomless pit that will prevent you from developing that group of people. But when you get to the end of Daniel chapter 11 and the beginning of Daniel chapter 12 verse 1, Michael stands up. He stands up because he has won the final battle in the great controversy. And he has a group of people who will be a demonstration, a revelation of his character through the dark of, darkest hours of earth's history. If you want to be among that number, I invite you to stand with me as we close with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you are in heaven right now working to develop a group of people who will be just like you. We pray that we would accept your blood and your life, that we would come boldly to your throne, and that we would be among that number whom you stand up for in that last great day. And may that day be soon. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.